This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Natasha Faroes and I'm joined by Kate Andrews and Isabel Hardman. The Bank of England today have opted to keep interest rates at their 15-year high. Kate, is this a sign that they've hit their peak? Some think that that there are some signs that uh, interest rates have peaked now. The fact that the Monetary Policy Committee voted 6-3 to to hold rates at 5.25% was not as tight as that first vote to hold rates, uh, which was 5-4. to Capital Economics thinks it's all but certain that interest rates have peaked now. Market expectation is, is about that they've peaked. But the Bank of England is very clear in its report this morning that there are plenty of factors that could lead to changes, and they're not going to try to predict them, and um, that the potential for the inflation rate to go back up because of conflict in the Middle East, for example, is something that's cited. And what they're really clear about is that we shouldn't expect to see an interest rate cut anytime soon. The good news for the government is that their most up-to-date forecast suggests that Rishi Sunak is going to meet that pledge to have inflation by the end of the year. The bank thinks in Q4 the rate will fall to just below 5%, which will just be meeting Rishi Sunak's target. The really grim news out of the report this morning is is what they think is going to happen with growth across the UK. So uh, they've revised their projections down for 2023. They think there's going to be no growth next year. Look, a lot of these doomsday predictions have been defied by the UK. At the start of the year, everyone was talking about recession. That hasn't happened yet. But the problem is that these interest rates, right, they're meant to take heat out of the economy. They're meant to reduce demand. It's thought that the 14 consecutive rate hikes that we've had are not being fully felt yet. When they are, that may damper the economy even more. And uh, we are already in a very tricky state of virtually having no growth. That is going to be harder for the prime minister to hear, especially given that one of his other five pledges was to get the economy growing. If he does meet that in 2023, it's going to be on a technicality. No one's going to feel better off. And 2024 is, at the moment, again, plenty can change, including public policy and maybe a, a, a very firm growth strategy. But at the moment, it's it's looking like 2024 is going to be even more difficult. Isabel, how do you think the government's taken the announcement today? Well, Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt have got this line, which is the best tax cut they can give the British people at the moment is to cut inflation. Um, now, obviously, as we know, it is not a tax cut, but you can understand the the underlying argument there, which is that this is the thing that will impact on their wallets, on their feelings about how the economy is going much better than tax cuts. The problem is, is that there are lots of Tory MPs who've never agreed with that and who agree with it even less as time wears on and as an election looms because they think that their party should, alongside tackling inflation, be cutting taxes. Now, the rejoinder from Hunt and Sunak is, yes, but if you start cutting taxes, then you can't cut inflation. But we basically have this fundamental conflict within the party over the timetable. And we've seen greater pressure, which we've obviously covered in The Spectator at length, from Conservative backbenchers who... And not Rishi Sunak fans anyway, it's fair to say, but who are also concerned that the party is not offering a conservative pitch to voters that sufficiently differentiates it from Labour on taxes or, or, or indeed on anything else other than competence, which is not an area the Conservatives particularly want to get into at the moment. It's also, I think, highly disputed by economists, certainly by some MPs, this idea that 
tax cuts, especially certain tax cuts, really would be inflationary. So, you know, if we were talking about a 20, 30, 40 billion pound tax cut, potentially. But at the moment, you know, I, I have no indication that the government's talking about that kind of tax cut, Isabel. I, I suspect they're not. No. And so any kind of thing that they did now would kind of just be signaling to people where their sympathies lie with the current tax burden, which is at a post-war high. It, it's very unlikely that that kind of tax cut would be inflationary. What we're more likely do is just help people meet their bill payments and, you know, help people get by a little bit more. It is very unlikely at this point that would lead to mass kinds of spending in the economy. So I think the more that they repeat that talking point, the more they're actually frustrating people who might otherwise be sympathetic because they just don't really think it adds up. Now, Isabel, we have written a cover story about the COVID farce this week, looking at the COVID inquiry and how what are the sorts of things that people are actually trying to discover throughout this COVID inquiry. You were there today. Has it been any different? I mean, it... No, not really, because a lot of it has been about the the kind of psychodrama, and that's partly a function of this this module um, that the inquiry is doing at the moment, which is on decision making at the uh, at the sort of core of government. So the question of whether or not Matt Hancock was a liar came up a lot in the evidence sessions that we've had today. They've uh, been from Simon Stevens, former chief executive of NHS England, Chris Wormold, uh, current permanent secretary of the Department of Health. And I think it's fair to say that the language still hasn't been something you'd use in a church. So the, the word bullshit has come up a few times. But but by and large, the bleep machine has had a bit more of a breather today because it's been too civil servants to you know public service managers uh, as opposed to Dominic Cummings uh, or political advisors and when it came to the question of whether Matt Hancock told the truth Simon Stevens I mean he he dodged the question but he's such an adept political operator that I can't help but feel cynic as I am that the reason he was dodging the question was to draw more attention to his eventual answer so initially he said uh, I was brought up to always look for the best in people uh, as an answer to was Matt Hancock truthful pressed a couple more times he eventually said for the most part yes which reminds me of a reference somebody I know wrote for um a, a, an idiot who worked for them and which was often punctual and can be trusted with small amounts of money um <laughs> because obviously the the question then is well <laughs> in the the bits where he wasn't uh, trustworthy when was he like and Chris Wormold was also asked about this. And again, his reaction was even more civil service than uh, Simon Stevens. So he was very, very diplomatic. I, I know that Wormold is one of those civil servants who is very concerned about maintaining the relationship of complete trust between cabinet minister and relevant permanent secretary. Um, and I could see from the way he was answering that he was concerned about his future relationships with any Secretary of State who he had to work with. But he was saying that Hancock would probably be surprised by the extent of people who thought he wasn't telling the truth. So he said that he himself, Chris Wormob, was surprised that Helen McNamara thought that Hancock was lying as well um, and that he hadn't heard Helen say that before her evidence session yesterday. But actually, if you strip down the, the bare points of what they're saying... They are, in language, totally different to, but in substance, pretty much the same as what Dominic Cummings was saying. So mm. Wormob was saying that Hancock liked to, liked to set 
overambitious targets to try to inspire people to meet them. And then he did suggest that he was slightly economical with the truth about whether he'd met those targets uh, as well. Now, to your point about, and the one that we've we've made in our cover piece this week, about whether this actually advances the, the vast sum of human knowledge beyond don't appoint a prime minister who a lot of people thought was manifestly unfit for a national crisis before he even became conservative leader. I mean, that's that's possibly a key lesson that we don't need a public inquiry to teach us or don't appoint a health secretary who has who uses batting imitations to uh, signify how much they are loving, and I quote, um, a national crisis. What, what are we actually learning that's of substance that's of importance to good government, to the next pandemic and so on? I'm not sure that's being very well articulated in these evidence sessions. My hope is that the public inquiry, when it reports from this module and overall, will contain lessons about how to protect the system so that it's much harder for people to lie, so that there are more checks and balances in place against poor decision-making, against cognitive disconnect. But I'm generally not a very hopeful person. I'm a pessimist, and I think I'm right to be a pessimist because most public inquiries of the last 30 years... The point on which they failed has not been the way the inquiry was structured in the evidence sessions or anything like that, but the fact that no one pays any attention to their reports once they're made and that their recommendations, many of which are hugely important and wise and informed, are not implemented. Kate, in the inquiry, Matt Hancock's been the protagonist for today, and it's been described that Matt Hancock argued that he should be the one to decide who lived or died in the event of a shortage of medical supplies and the NHS being overwhelmed. Since the pandemic and since he's left his position as being an MP, he's sort of been on this PR campaign, uh, you know, he's been on several reality TV shows. Covered in spiders and Covered in spiders, celebrity SAS. We saw this extraordinary clip on Twitter of him on Celebrity SAS earlier this week. Do you think that this is, you know, a massive step back for him this week? I don't think it's a massive step back for Matt Hancock for two reasons. When you're that high on your own supply, it takes, you have to fall a really, really, really long way. And it's not obvious to me that he he has ever fully hit the ground of understanding um, the deep frustration surrounding comments like that, right? You know, suggesting that a minister should be in a position to decide who who lives or who dies whilst they themselves, we know, were were breaking lockdown rules. But also, I just think this confirms what people already think was happening behind closed doors. This isn't a new side of Matt Hancock or, frankly, over the week, Boris Johnson or any other minister that we've seen yet. I don't think we've had a real surprise piece of information that has made us look at things in a slightly different way. Perhaps the closest we've come to that is Boris Johnson and the more we learn from his WhatsApps, crass as sometimes they are worded, the more we discover that he really was thinking more about the trade-offs of lockdown than ever showed up in his public policy and ever really showed up in those announcements. But, you know, these comments about Hancock, they they just reconfirmed to everybody, I think, what they already suspected, which is that he handled the pandemic in a, vow, in, in a very power-hungry way. Uh, and that was why his fall, when it, you know, all the information came out about his breaking rules, um, was truly so catastrophic to his career because he had been such an advocate of such harsh restrictions. I think it's also worth viewing what Simon Stevens was saying in the context of the power struggle between Simon Stevens and Matt Hancock over 
who had the decision-making capacity when it came to NHS England. And the point that Stevens made in his, in his evidence was that medics were the best place to take those decisions uh, rather than Matt Hancock, which I think is undeniable. But what I think he didn't say, but what I think is still true, is that around that time there was also legislation in the works from Matt Hancock which to all intents and purposes, reversed the disastrous Andrew Lansley reforms back um, in 2011, 2012, um, which actually created NHS England as a separate body and made its chief executive, who within a few years was Simon Stevens, very powerful in terms of decision-making and made the ministers significantly less powerful and less responsible for the decisions being made. Now, in that legislation... Matt Hancock was proposing a lot of things that Simon Stevens wanted, um, which were a sort of formalisation of uh, some of the things that Simon Stevens had really under the radar done with NHS structures to uh, ensure that the worst of the Landsley reforms never actually happened. And Stevens had pushed those to the point that really they needed to be embedded within legislation so the NHS didn't end up getting sued. Um, but Hancock added in a load of other stuff which brought the power of the Secretary of State back into play in terms of NHS England. One of the health commentators uh, who I know we've had on Coffee House, Andy Cowper, always put it at the time, is the solution to this more Matt Hancock? And the answer was always no, particularly from Simon Stevens. So I think that's just worth reflecting that actually there was also a power struggle just about who made the day-to-day -day decisions on NHS England. Both men wanted to be the ones who did that. Thank you, Isabel. Thank you, Kate. And thanks for listening.